Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you, um, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke? Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 15. We're departing from our study in John because it is Father's Day. And uh, so we'll go to the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we're so thankful that we can approach you as our Father in heaven. That relationship that has been brought about by what your son Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago enables us to not relate to a God who is distant or aloof or who has wound up the universe and now is not nearby, but there is an intimacy and a walk that we can have with you that that only those who enter into that relationship can ever know fully. We pray that others would come into that relationship. We thank you for the one we have, and we pray that we might understand what those attributes of fatherhood that you exhibit, that we as parents on earth might exhibit toward those around us, our children around us. Strengthen the ties of every family in this fellowship today, this week. Help us to change in areas where we need to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's see, 103 years ago, Father's Day was celebrated, at least as far as we know, for the first time in our country. Started back in West Virginia. It's a great idea. One kid, in answering the question the teacher posed in class when She said, what's the difference between Mother's Day and Father's Day? The kid said, well, they're essentially the same, only on Father's Day you spend far less than you do on Mother's Day. (laughs) One little eight-year-old boy said, my daddy can do anything. He can climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest ocean. He can fly the fastest airplane. He can do anything, but most of the time he just carries out the garbage. Did you know that the one day in our country that sees the most telephone traffic is Mother's Day? More calls are made on Mother's Day than any other day by far. But we are told by AT&T that the one day where you see the most collect phone calls are made on Father's Day. That's true. At the same time, I don't think any dad minds getting that call. Twenty-five years ago, I became a father to a little boy named Nathan Alexander 25 years ago. Ten months ago, I became a grandpa to little Seth. Now, I remember hearing for the first time my son say, Dad, Dad. Those may have been his first words. I'm not sure. But but when I heard it, it's like, ah, music. It's the best sound ever. Although grandpa may be the best sound. I'm not quite sure yet. I'm waiting to hear that. Somebody once said, uh, a father is 
a person who carries pictures where his money used to be. I want to modify that. I want to say a grandpa is someone who carries pictures where his money used to be, but he doesn't care. Um, Our generations have changed in recent years. used to be in my parents' generation where dads were pretty distant from their kids. That's the way I grew up, at least, in the formative years. Uh, They didn't spend a whole lot of time with you know, intimate family chores, spending time, changing diapers, those kinds of things. Uh, Thankfully, things have changed over the years. When they started to change, um, back in the 1960s, actually, is when it it really began, that trend. Um, One baseball player named uh, Pearsall, Jimmy Pearsall, played for the Red Sox and the Mets and later on the Angels, wrote a little piece called A Dad's Guide to Changing Diapers. And uh, in those days, diapers weren't what they are today. They were simply squares of cotton cloth. And so here's a professional baseball player giving dads uh, instructions on how to change diapers, A Dad's Guide to Changing Baby Diapers. First, spread the diaper in the position of the diamond when you're at bat. Then fold second base down to home and set the baby on the pitcher's mound. Put first base and third base together. Bring up home plate and pin the three together. Of course, in case of rain, you've got to call the game and start all over again. I love that. Uh, in Luke chapter 15, where I've asked you to turn this morning, we have, we have what is the best known and best loved of all of Jesus' parables. It is the parable of the prodigal son, so-called. Charles Dickens said it was the best short story ever written. So did Ralph Waldo Emerson. Now it's called, and it begins in verse 11 of that chapter, by the way, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. I don't like that title, because that is not the emphasis of the story. It's really not about the son, as much as it is highlighting the gracious nature of the Father. Jesus is talking about how God in heaven is willing to forgive repentant sinners, and it's the third in a series of parables that teach that story. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to rename what has traditionally been called The parable of the prodigal son, no, this is the parable of the merciful father. That is the emphasis here. The name of my message is, A Dad You Can Come Home To. And I want to give you five characteristics of the father of the prodigal son. Um, There was once a boy who was told by a family friend. Family friend said, You remind me of your father. The little boy stuck his tongue out in disgust. Tells you a lot. Another boy was told, You remind me of your father. This little boy, the second one, stuck out his chest, not his tongue, in dignity. At some point in your life, if somebody said, You remind me of your father, would you, uh, would you have that child stick out the tongue or the chest? Would it be a disgust or a delight? Questions to mull around as we go through our story. Now, 
I want to take you back to verse 1 of chapter 15. I always like to get history. I always like to get context. I don't want to jump into anything and show you, show you any misinterpretation. So verse 1 and 2 sets the stage. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, So Jesus answers this complaint that Christ hung out with the riffraff of society. And he does so in a clever way by giving them three stories, a trilogy of parables. The first is the story of a lost sheep. The second one is the story of a lost coin. The third is the story of a lost son, all with the same unique lesson That is, God is willing to restore and bring back and forgive, find somebody who is lost, a repentant sinner. So it's a trilogy, the same message. Beginning in verse 3 is the parable of the lost sheep. Now listen to this. There's a hundred sheep, one is lost, that leaves how many left? Ninety-nine. So we have a one percent loss. In the second story, you have ten coins, one is lost, so nine are left. That represents a 10% loss. The third story shows the most profound loss. That's our story. There are two sons, one is lost. That's a 50% relational loss. Most profound. That helps set the stage. So I want to give you five characteristics of the dad, the father of the prodigal son. Number one, he was flexible. We begin our story where it begins. Verse 11, Then he said a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. That's where we get the idea of the prodigal son, that word. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want or in need. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, you'll notice the word prodigal. That's an old English word. We don't use the term anymore. It means wasteful, profligate, self-centered. We call a person a spendthrift, willing to to pour out all of the resources for a self-indulgent lifestyle. So this son is the quintessential example of wasting your life. So you have a father with a rebellious son, probably a teenager. Why a teenager? Because he's obviously not married. He goes out alone. He was of age to demand an inheritance. That would put him right about the teenage years. We have a a rebellious teenage son. Now, here's something you need to know about the story. They would have understood it as they listened to Jesus. According to Jewish laws of inheritance, whenever you had a two-son family, the oldest son got twice as much as the youngest son. So two-thirds went to the oldest son in the pecking order. One-third went to the youngest son. 
But that inheritance went to the sons when the dad what? Died. Hence, inheritance. You don't get it while you're alive. You get it when the dad dies. That's when you inherit the property, the money, etc. Here we have a son leveling the highest degree of dishonor to his father in that culture. To say, I want my inheritance now was tantamount to saying, Dad, I want you dead. I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were dead. I want you out of my life. I don't want to be a part of this town. I don't want to be a part of this family. I don't want to be a part of you. Give me my inheritance now. Now, you've got to understand that in that culture, imbued by and soaked in the Ten Commandments, one of which is honor your father and your mother, this was top of the list of disgracefulness. And, and, typically, if a son was this rebellious so as to demand the inheritance, it was met by, number one, it was met by a slap in the face by the father. Publicly, typically. Number two, public scorn. Number three, a funeral service for the son who's now considered dead. He's put out of the community. He's put out of the family. This kind of rebellion was high on the list. So a ceremony was actually done. Now, later on in the story, you're going to sort of read that. Not that there was ever a funeral service of such, but this father will say when the son comes home, my son who was dead is alive again. In other words, he's come back home. So this is a high degree of dishonor. Here's what I want you to notice. Even though this son dishonors his father, this father honors the choice of his son. We read in verse 12, the second portion of it, So he divided to them his livelihood. He did it. He didn't have to do it. He did it. Why did he do it? Why did he say, okay, here, I'll give you your one-third? Well, number one, there was no law technically that would forbid a father from doing this. But number two, and this is really to the point of the entire story, you have a father giving the sinner freedom and honoring the choice of the son, letting him do his thing. Now, dads, you know how this works. Moms, you know how this works. You you know that there comes a point in your child's upbringing as they grow, they reach a certain age where suddenly they know so much more than you will ever hope to know. And they let you know that. You are just ignorant. You just don't have a clue. Suddenly, overnight, you grew dumber. And they grew enlightened And they don't want any part of this anymore. And you're standing in the way. You're the barrier to their fun and the barrier to their freedom. Ah, the teenage years. What's a parent to do? You probably heard about Mark Twain. If you've ever read him, you know you always read him with a smile. He was was great at saying things with a few words. Mark Twain said, everything goes pretty well till the child reaches about age 13. That's the time you put your child in a barrel, put the lid on nice and tight, and feed him through the knot hole. (laughs) Then he continues, about age 16, close up the knot hole. (laughs) That's not good advice. 
And that's not what this father does. What he does is he is flexible. He honors the choice of his son. Here's an Old Testament commandment of inheritance laws that typically was reserved to the death of the father, but he's flexible. He cashes in and gives it to his son. Not that he agrees with his son's choice, but he honors his choice. When I say flexible, I don't mean that you should ever compromise your values or lower your standard of righteousness. But if you're a parent, as as your children get older, you're going to recognize that you walk a tightrope. The tightrope of living with godly values that you have chosen and letting your children choose what values they want to live by and allowing them to do that. One man described his frustration as he was giving his third daughter now away in an engagement. And if you're a dad and you have daughters, you dread the day when you're going to give your daughter away to that guy. And so this dad said, every time this happens, I'm obsessed with the feeling that I'm giving a million dollar Stradivarius to a gorilla. (laughs) And so this father divides up the estate. He does not slap his son. He does not publicly scorn his son. He does not hold a funeral ceremony for his son. With love and acceptance, he is flexible and he honors the choice. And this is something the son will never forget. This memory of this father will come back. will be the first thing on his mind when everything drops after the choice he has made. By the way... Why is it the teenagers go with the wrong crowd? Answer, because that crowd accepts them. They'll tell you that. They'll even tell you they'll join gangs because the gang is the new family. They'll accept me for who I am. Here's a father who is flexible and honors the choice, though disagrees with it, honors the choice of this son who has come of age. So number one, he was flexible. Second characteristic of this father, he was reliable. Look at verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, that's day laborers, have enough bread and to spare, and I perish with hunger. Now, that little sentence that we just read shows that this son's dad was diligent in business. This little sentence shows that this father must have been wealthy. If even the day laborers not only have enough to eat, but more than enough to eat, says they have food to spare. So this must have been a a, a pretty substantial estate we're dealing with, right? I mean, if this son believes he'll be able to live extravagantly on just his portion of the inheritance cashed in, must have been pretty wealthy guy. And as you read through the story, indeed, he had land, he had animals, he had buildings. He hires day laborers. He hires musicians later on, dancers. He brings in a fatted calf. He gives a gold ring. He gives new clothes and new shoes to his son. He was a man of substance. So here's a kid who gets a third of that substance, cashes it out, and he goes to another place. He um, he has his wad of money. It drains and dries up very, very quickly, and now he is bankrupt and humiliated and depressed. And as so often happens in situations like this, this young man's thoughts immediately go back to a warm home provided for by a hardworking father. 
It's not only a story of a disrespectful son, but of a successful father. Here's a son who doesn't care at all about the fact that his dad had the kind of work ethic to provide for him an inheritance to begin with. But there's an important point to be made out of that verse. To you dads who are hardworking and diligent in business like this one, I want to say to you, thank you. On behalf of heaven, thank you. If for no other reason that you work hard and you are navigating in this very difficult present economy a way to provide for your family. For some of you, I've spoken to you, you've had to take two jobs, not one or three, just to make ends meet. You deserve thanks just for that. I hope you are remembered and thanked on this day and those around you appreciate you. St. Augustine, I've quoted on many occasions, his most famous work was called Confessions and he writes about his dad. No one had anything but praise for my father who despite his slender resources was ready to provide his son with all that was needed to enable him to travel so far for the purpose of study, speaking about himself. Many of our townsmen, far richer than my father, went to no such trouble for their children's sake. Thanking his father for working hard. I do want to add a note of caution, however. While you're working hard to provide for your family, make sure that you learn how to balance the hard work with the time spent with family, the time spent with children. Um, We can become overcommitted and so preoccupied with our position or our status or our work and, and we know how to get busy and we can neglect the nurture. Let me add another footnote to that. While you're working hard to provide for your family, make sure that you teach your children the value of hard work. And here's one way. If you happen to be blessed financially more than others, so you have a lot more because you worked hard than you had growing up, your tendency is to say, I want to give to my children what they never, what I never had growing up. I wish I would have had that, but I can provide that. So the tendency is to want to sort of freely pour into their laps without teaching them the value of hard work. Refrain yourself from that. Show them that just like you worked hard, they got to work hard. I don't know any child that will say amen to that, but later on they will. So he was reliable. That's the second characteristic. Here's the third characteristic of this dad. He was approachable. Verse 17. When he came to himself, you know what that means? He came to himself. Bang, light went on came to his senses. He woke up. Here he is, a Jewish kid feeding pigs in a foreign country. It's like, what am I doing? Came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now you see what's happening, right? This son 
is rehearsing in his mind an imaginary speech that he'd like to give his dad. He's run out of everything. So he plays this little soliloquy in his mind of what, what could be said. I mean, here's a kid who made a dumb choice, but the dumb choice was met by something he couldn't help, and that is bad economic conditions, a severe famine in the land. So you have something compounding, a natural catastrophe compounding a bad choice. The first, he could help his choice. The second, he could not help. So he left home, and the combination of a bad personal decision and bad economic conditions, the conflux of those two made him absolutely desperate. He has no one to turn to, no one to talk to. He is on skid row. The party is over. But he came to himself. And who's the first one that comes to his mind when he is at the lowest point in his life? His dad. His dad. Now, now he's going through this little imaginary conversation with his dad, which tells you a lot about the father. Here's a son that can predict the response of his father. He knows his father's going to be fair. He knows his father's going to be generous. He knows his father is going to be approachable. And so he plans to go back. Never once does this son think his dad is going to refuse him. Never once does this son think his dad is going to turn him away. He knows his father. By the way, parents, your kids know you better than you think. I bet they can predict your response in most cases. When I grew up, I knew when my dad was going to launch into one of his speeches. He had like five speeches, and this was going to be number two. And uh, he's going to start with this story, and I know what he's going to say, and I could say it with him. (laughs) Don't ever do that. (laughs) Do you want your kids to know that there is a God in heaven that they can approach and come to at any time? Wouldn't you love to raise children that are, are bold to enter the throne room of God, to receive grace to help in time of need, to ask, to seek, to knock, to quickly repent of their sin and be forgiven by a loving Father. We'd love that, wouldn't we? That's approachability. To teach them to, be, uh, to, to approach God with that, they have to approach you the same way. You teach them God's approachability by modeling approachability. You know why I say that? Did you know that a child's first impression of God is typically what he sees in a father? That makes sense. What did Jesus teach us to pray like? Our Father who art in heaven. We have a heavenly Father. Just that term, when a child hears Father, he's going to naturally think of his father or her father, earthly father. And so that child is going to quickly think, God must be a lot like my dad. That can either be good or bad. I've been with kids who, when their dad enters the room, they, they tense up, they're short of breath because of the conditioning they have received. I, I knew one girl who was a young teenager. When her father entered the room, she urinated. She was so petrified of that man back in her life. The relationship was so tough. Well, it's going to be tough to get past that and say, you can come to God anytime. He is so approachable, like a father would be if that's all she knew. So the question is, how approachable are you? Jobs can get bad. The week can go sour. 
you might be irritable, things aren't working out for you economically, and then you have a child at home wanting your attention. How do you deal with that? That's tough. One little boy was at home waiting for his dad. Dad came home, had a bad day at work. Dad was irritable, didn't want really any company, no children. And this child was waiting at the door, bouncing up and down, had all the energy of a little boy. Dad didn't really want anything to do with him when he got home. At dinner time, the son asked this question, Daddy, how much money do you make an hour? Father turned to him and rebuffed him, saying, It's none of your business how much money I make. The little boy said, Oh, come on, I'm not going to tell anybody. How much money do you make? He said, Okay, I make $25 an hour. The little boy hung his head very sadly. After dinner, went into his room, brought out his piggy bank, emptied it out. He had $15, and he said, Dad, can I borrow $10? father said, why? The child said, I, I would like to buy one hour of your time. That's, that's what he knew. This dad wasn't approachable. This dad in the story was approachable. Here's the son saying, I'm going back to dad, and I'm going to say this to dad, and dad's going to... He's predicting the response. The father was approachable. Here's the fourth characteristic. This father was gentle. Look at verse 20 again, and we'll read further down. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. There's the speech he'd rehearsed. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now Jesus is telling the story and the Pharisees are listening. And um, I'm just going to say that at this point, if these Pharisees were leaning against anything or sitting on anything, they fell off about now. Because what Jesus said about this father was unknown in that culture. For a father to act like this after he has been dishonored by the son, it did not happen. Here's a son who dishonors his father by demanding an inheritance. Here's a son who runs away, squanders and loses everything in profligate living, runs now back home and comes back with another outrageous request. I want to come back home. Now, the typical return, if this ever did really happen in ancient times, for a son to dishonor parents like this and then come back home, the typical return would mean, number one, being scorned by the community, rebuked by the community publicly, like as was typical if he left. Number two, the child was required to bow before the father and kiss his feet. And number three, that child would work and there would be an evaluation time that the community would, in their scorn, evaluate his work if he would earn back the the, uh, ability to be a part of this community and this family once again. There was no grace. There was no compassion. There was work. You earn it. You get that respect back by hard work. That's why the Pharisees must have been stunned when it says, and notice the word compassion, his father had compassion on him. 
It's the strongest possible word for compassion. Splanchnizome. It literally means intestines, guts, because they thought the deepest emotions were felt in the gut. Here's the father deeply emotional toward his son with compassion. That's what it means. There's no hesitation here by the father. There's no castigation by the father. There's no inquisition. There's no, now I told you, you should have listened to me. None of that at all. No, there is compassion. In fact, there's celebration. Bring out the party, man. My son was dead and is alive. I want you to notice something. Look at verse 20. It says, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Stop there. How is it that this father could see his son way far away? Answer. He must have been looking for him. And he must have been looking for him regularly. His eye must have been on the road regularly for him to spot way down the road. That's my son coming. Second thing you'll notice that once he saw him, he ran toward his son. Uh, It's a word that means he sprinted. He did the 100-yard dash. It's an athletic term. Here's a question. Why, Why did his dad run? To get to, here's his son way on the outskirts of town, moving toward the village. His dad sees him and sprints toward him. Here's why, I believe. His father wanted to get to his son before his son could get to that village. Because once that son hit town, that would mean public rebuke, public scorn, shame on you, shame, shame, shame. His father wanted to save his son from all of that. I want to get to my son before my son gets to this town. So he ran toward him. And then it says he kissed him. The word implies to kiss heartily, to cover him with many kisses. That's why I'm sure the Pharisees were going, like, what? What? That just doesn't happen. Something else that struck me as I read this. The father says nothing to his son at first. He listens. He listens. No little speech. It's not like, okay, this is number two speech. Here it goes. Or this is number three speech. I know what he's going to say. None of that. His father listens as his son speaks. And then his father says, bring the ring, bring the robe, bring the calf. Let's have a party for him. Here's the application. You may not approve of what your son or daughter is doing. That's, that's fair. You have that right. You're a parent. You can voice that. You may not like who they're dating. That. Stradivarius and that gorilla, you you don't approve. You may not approve of his earrings that he's wearing or her tattoos all over her body, but that is your child. And only you have the key to that heart. And when they come back, if at all, in any capacity, that is a very strategic moment. Don't waste the moment. One researcher sampled 500 college dropouts and discovered the number one outstanding characteristic in all of these college dropouts was a sense of isolation from parents, especially from father. This father was approachable. This father was gentle. Fifth and finally, this dad in the story was impartial. There's two sons. Verse 25, now the older son was in the field, And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. 
Boy, I wish I had several weeks to do more messages on this. We just don't have the time. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And so he said, your brother has come. And because he had received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours... (laughs) Have you ever heard those words before? He didn't say, Now when my brother comes home... It's suddenly this son of yours. Parents do this. Um, it's my son. Look at my son. Then if the son does something bad, <clears throat> you know what your son did today? <laughs> what happened? Now this son of yours who has devoured your livelihood with harlots and you killed the fatted calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, the oldest son, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Now, the elder son would receive two-thirds eventually of the entire inheritance. Not one-third, but more, two-thirds. Here he's complaining that his dad showed the younger brother mercy. There is no impartiality in this dad, but that's exactly what he's accused of by the elder son. A dad loved his youngest son. He's willing to forgive his youngest son, but the dad also loved the older son and was giving the rest of the estate. All that I have is yours. Remember two thirds. He's taken the third and squandered it. The rest of it, all of it is yours. And you're with me always. He didn't play favorites. Look at something else. Verse 28 But he was angry and would not go in. Now the father, the party, it's all inside the building. This oldest son wouldn't go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Just like the father came out of the town to greet the youngest son, he comes out of the house to plead with the oldest brother. He loves them both equally. There's no favoritism here. He wants them both to feel loved, both to feel special, both to feel accepted, and he's misunderstood because of it. The older son, not the dad, pulls up the comparisons. You never did that for me. You're doing that for him. You never gave me a goat. You're giving him a calf. The father never makes comparisons. Father never says, well, now, Shlomo, I wish you were more like Mordecai. Mordecai is just a great son. None of that is ever in the story. There's this lavish love for both sons And he is greatly misunderstood. So, in short, this is a dad you can come home to. This is the kind of dad the world needs more of. This is the kind of dad churches need more of. Will your child, in years to come, when they say, you remind me of your dad, stick out the tongue or stick out the chest? I close with what William Franklin wrote. If he's wealthy and prominent and you stand in awe of him, call him father. If he sits in shirt sleeves and suspenders at a baseball game and a picnic, call him pop. 
If he wheels the baby carriage and carries bundles meekly, call him Papa with the accent on the first syllable. If he belongs to a literary circle and writes cultured papers, call him Papa with the accent on the last syllable. If, however, he makes a pal of you when you're good and is too wise to let you pull the wool over his loving eyes when you're not, if, moreover, you're quite sure that no other fellow you know has quite so fine a father, you may call him dad. This father was the dad to this son. And the emphasis is on the merciful father. All of that to show the Pharisees and the crowds listening that God in heaven is like that. Merciful, loving, gentle, compassionate, flexible, etc. Allowing us to make choices, receiving us back when there's repentance and joy because of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's so great that we have the opportunity to call you that. It never would be possible unless your son went to the cross and shed his blood that our sins might be forgiven, that we could have a relationship with God that is that close, that intimate. And so we're grateful for the gospel that we have heard that has transformed sinners into children of God who have a heavenly father. And as Hebrew says, a brother like Jesus. Lord, we pray that our appreciation of you on this Father's Day would grow, that our understanding would deepen, that you are this kind of a Father, and infinitely more so. That when sin abounds, grace overflows. When there is repentance, you are willing, more than willing, to forgive and to provide. And then, Father, I pray for dads. That's really my heart, is for families today. And especially for men who are fathers to become in some small measure even a reflection of this father. Lord, some of us don't have dads to honor. We simply have a memory. And for some here, the memory is not a sweet one. Would you, would you further healing in that area, Lord? And would you let, would you let them know that You are different than any human father. You're perfect. There's no flaw in you. Whatever needs to be altered in our view of the fatherhood of God based upon our earthly dad, would you please do that? We're asking you, Lord, to do a lot of things, but you're the only one that can do them. And you told us to ask, to seek, to knock, because you are so approachable. And so we do in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.